Hi, Dr. Sam Waldron here. The fields are white for harvest, but the laborers are few. Most men who need a seminary education can afford it the least, and no seminary is fully supported by student tuition and fees. We rely on the generosity of our supporters and friends. Would you give today and help us to make informed scholarship with pastoral heart affordable for the next generation of gospel ministers? Visit cbtseminary.org give to learn how you can help. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. Okay, uh, let me give you a diagram of what we've done in this historical introduction. We uh, started out in the early church uh, with uh, looking at how Greek philosophy uh, set the context for early Christian apologetics. Uh, and uh, we looked at Justin, who uh, was highly influenced by it on the one hand, and Tertullian, who at least in some respects was... Uh, more hostile to uh, the uh, use of Greek philosophy. Then we came to the Augustinian church. We looked at Augustine as setting the context for everything that follows. And then we saw Aquinas and Kelvin as contrasting, um, actually contrasting developments of Augustine himself. And then we came to the modern church and after looking at uh, uh, briefly at the philosophical context in the, in the modern era and empiricism and rationalism, so we had the philosophical context, we looked at, the, on the one hand, at Warfield and Princeton, and then we looked at Kuiper and Amsterdam, two very different schools of apologetics, okay? And now we're going to come to, uh, our, I'm gonna come to argue that there was a kind of synthesis that uh, between these two schools, uh, and uh, I think that's a synthesis of epical importance in Van Til. <clears throat> By way of introduction then. Cornelius Van Til developed the system of apologetics known as presuppositionalism in conscious interaction with Warfield and Kuiper. As the name suggests, presuppositionalism stresses the importance of understanding that both Christian and non-Christian thinking is controlled and begins with certain presuppositions or first principles. We will treat the development of Van Til's presuppositional apologetics by means of the same five categories under which we have looked at Old Princeton and Amsterdam. First of all, internal unity. The preceding survey of the Old Princeton and Amsterdam apologetic approaches makes clear that from a biblical viewpoint, they had opposite or contrasting strengths and weaknesses. Spencer comments on the relation of the deficiencies of the Amsterdam and Old Princeton schools of apologetics. Interestingly, these deficiencies are not in identical aspects. Each school's weaknesses are aligned or arranged opposite strengths in the other school. For example, Old Princeton emphasizes the cognitive or rational or reasonable, basis for faith neglected by Amsterdam, while Kuiper and Bavink emphasize 
the internal witness of the Spirit as the solely sufficient persuasive agent concerning the divine origin of Scripture. Again, Old Princeton emphasizes, emphasizes the enduring rational character of man, even in sin, while Amsterdam emphasizes the radical and pervasive effects of the fall and their significance for apologetics. The situation points to a resolution of the dispute, a wedding, <clears throat> or fusion of the two schools of thought, gaining the strengths and insights of both and avoiding the weaknesses of each. In so doing, a more consistently biblical position in apologetics emerges. This is indeed what has happened historically, as in the thought of a man deeply indebted to both traditions, Cornelius Van Til. <coughs> There is in Van Til's teaching a conscious resolution and synthesis of the antithesis between Old Princeton and Amsterdam. When we speak of Van Til synthesizing or combining these two schools, however, it is not as though we are saying that Van Til owes an equal debt to both. Rather, it is clear that Van Til stands basically in the Amsterdam tradition. This, in fact, is how Spencer repeatedly treats him. Van Til, speaking of the debate between Warfield and Kuiper, straightforwardly asserts, I have chosen the position of Abraham Kuiper. Three, yet Van Til has a conscious difference of opinion with Kuiper. He makes clear his differences with Kuiper by saying, but I am unable to follow him when from the fact of the mutually disruptive character of the two principles, he concludes to the uselessness of reasoning with the natural man. In other words, Van Til believes it is correct, incorrect, to reason as follows. The natural man, because of his unsaved and depraved mind, has a completely different approach to knowledge than the believer. Therefore, it's useless to reason with him or try to defend the faith to him. We must simply wait for the Spirit to give him the eyes to see the truth. Van Til expands in another place on this point and shows his appreciation of Warfield. Warfield stresses the objective rationality of the Christian religion. This is not to suggest that Kuiper does not also believe in such an objective rationality, but by pointing out again and again that the Christian faith is belief on evidence, not blind belief, Warfield makes plain that Christianity is, quote, rationally defensible. This has direct significance for apologetics. Kuiper seems sometimes to argue from the fact that the natural man is blind to the truth to the uselessness of apologetics. But Warfield points out that this does not follow. On this point, he closely follows Kelvin. Men ought to conclude that God is their creator, their benefactor, and their judge. They ought to see these things because the revelation of God to them is always clear. The fact that men do not see this and cannot see this is due to the fact that their minds are darkened and their wills perverted through sin. Such is the argument of Kelvin. And Warfield's insistence that we believe Christianity because it is rational, and not in spite of the fact that it's irrational, is fully in accord with it. To the extent that Warfield differs on this point with Kuiper and has called us back to Kelvin, he has done great service for Christian apologetics. Four. Van Til saw a tension between Warfield and Kuiper. He gave a sharp and perceptive analysis of their approaches to apologetics. He felt that both were emphasizing vital but balancing aspects of the truth. He also felt that both were deducing ideas and views from their positive emphases, which were false. His crucial interaction with Warfield and Kuiper comes in the Christian theory of knowledge, where in a chapter entitled Natural Theology and Scripture, he interacts with the thought of both these men. His key statements and criticisms are brief, but piercing. 
Warfield has greatly stressed the point that God's revelation is present to every man and sometimes draws from it, from it the illegitimate conclusion that therefore the natural man, disregarding his ethical alienation from God, can give an essentially correct interpretation at least of natural revelation. Kuiper has stressed the natural man's ethical alienation from God and sometimes draws from it the illegitimate conclusion that the natural man is unable to understand the intellectual argument for Christianity in any sense. This brief statement keenly summarizes the contrasting apologetic strengths of Warfield and Kuiper. It also neatly summarizes and analyzes their contrasting weaknesses. Warfield fails to distinguish natural revelation and natural theology, and therefore deduces from or, or includes in natural revelation the idea of natural theology. Kuiper similarly fails to properly distinguish natural revelation and natural theology clearly, and therefore deduces from the noetic or intellectual effects of sin and the impossibility of a, general, a genuine natural theology, the idea that man is inaccessible to natural revelation. All of this points us to a distinction between natural revelation and natural theology, which is vital to Van Til's apologetic and crucial to a proper assessment of an approach to the natural man. 5. Van Til clearly makes a distinction between natural theology and natural revelation. I can't stress to you how important this point is. By speaking of two different senses in which we may speak of knowing God. This distinction is stated clearly by the paradox which says that man both knows and does not know the living God at one and the same time. And it's not like there's uh, at one time he knew God and now he doesn't. No, he does not know God and he knows God at one and the same time. In the sense of being aware of the witness to the existence and attributes of God given by general or natural revelation, all men, without exception, know God. In the sense of being able to construct from the data of natural revelation a natural theology or system of knowledge which would be a practical and godly basis for their lives, unregenerate men do not know God. Their sinful intellects always confuse, distort, and pervert natural revelation when they construct their systems of philosophy or religion. Listen to Van Til. He knows God, yet ethically he does not know God. So then in his preaching, the Reformed theologian is anxious to do justice to both aspects of biblical truth on this matter. He should stress on the one hand, the objective clarity of God's revelation to man. He should stress that this revelation is unavoidably be present to the natural man since it always enters into the penetralia, that is to say, the unfamiliar word means the innermost or secret parts of his consciousness. On the other hand, he should stress the ethical darkness of the mind of man. As a consequence of this darkness of mind, this spiritual blindness, the natural man does not know that which, in the sense above defined, he knows and cannot help but know. Well, that distinction right there may seem a little opaque or dark to some of you, but believe me, it is absolutely crucial to understanding Ventil and presuppositionalism. Philosophical influences. Van Til's general approach to secular philosophy. Here we have to say that Van Til manifests a greater self-conscious awareness of the dangers of secular philosophy than either Old Princeton or Amsterdam. He's keenly aware of the danger secular philosophy opposes 
to Christian apologetic efforts. In contrast to both schools, Van Til adopts an openly Christian approach to philosophy, which is in conscious contrast to non-Christian philosophy. You never catch Van Til quoting Aristotle's metaphysics and saying, as the philosopher has said, which is, of course, what Aquinas does every place in his works. Um, Spencer very ably summarizes Van Til's approach to secular philosophy. Van Til asserts that all non-Christian philosophy grows out of the evil hearts of unbelievers. This heart condition of being alienated or separated from God gives an anti-Christian tendency and meaning to everything the unbeliever says in his philosophy. The unbeliever may not be fully consistent with his ungodly heart and presuppositions, but everything he says will to one degree or the other be affected by them. This means that the believer may never unthinkingly or naively adopt any non-Christian philosophy. Van Til believes that the believer may use the same terminology as the unbeliever. Both unbeliever and believer may agree in saying that man is rational, yet the believer must be aware that this formal similarity of words does not deceive him into thinking that the, a believer and unbeliever mean the same thing by such terms. To summarize, Van Til's general perspective about secular world philosophy, we may say that the Christian may learn from the unbeliever, but he may never borrow from him. Here are Spencer's comments. Van Til attempts to more faithfully elaborate an explicitly self-conscious Christian philosophical position. The explanation of how he desires to do this and how it relate to non-Christian thought is in chapter 1 of a survey of Christian epistemology. There Van Til rejects the position which advocates that a distinctively Christian philosophy will utilize distinctively Christian terms. Van Til sees no need for that. The problem, as he sees it, is not so much with the terms and labels per se as with the meaning and content, content of the terms and labels. For Van Til, the presuppositions of an unregenerate philosophical perspective, growing out of his heart condition of alienation from and enmity toward God, are anti-Christian. This gives an anti-Christian cast of the entire system which is elaborated upon those presuppositions. The unregenerate may not be fully consistent in the outworking of his anti-God stance, but the opposition will always, in greater or lesser degree, make itself felt in the positions taken on all questions. Now, this implies two things. First, that the Christian may not borrow intact any aspect of an unregenerate's philosophical position. Every aspect of the latter's worldview is related to his heart commitment to rebellion against God. Therefore, when a Christian borrows a portion of an unregenerate worldview, he obtains a contaminated portion. He cannot use non-Christian elements without detracting from the fully Christian and godly quality which he desires that his worldview manifest. Second, Van Til states that though Christian and non-Christian philosophy will never, if each is consistent, share any common positions because each position is qualified and characterized by the basic heart commitment out of which it arises, there will nonetheless often be a formal similarity between the two positions. That is, the external form or structure, considered an abstraction apart from its content, may often be similar. For instance, both may speak of man as a rational person. However, by rational, they all mean something drastically different. The Christians will speak of God, man, and the world as creations of God. Um, 
uh, man in the image of God in Revelation. On the other hand, the non-Christian will refer to the natural realm, man as the accidental product of natural forces. Truth is defined purely in terms of the natural order, the independence of man and rising above and subduing his environment, and truth as transient. According to Van Til, the Christian may learn from the non-Christian, but he may not borrow from him. Whatever is said by the non-Christian is distorted by his rebellion against God and his consequent refusal to define or understand anything by reference to God. When a Christian learns from the non-Christian, he must take pains to ensure the insight gained from the non-Christian is thoroughly and radically reworked and modified in terms of a theistic foundation, context, and standard. When this is done, there will be only a formal similarity between the insight as is present in the non-Christian system and the insight as is present in the Christian system. So everything that comes out of secular philosophy, non-Christian philosophy, has to go through a Christian filter. And because everything in that non-Christian philosophy is tainted. Um, there are things in it from which we may learn, but they have to be carefully filtered through a Christian grid. Two, then, Van Til's interaction with secular philosophy. Now, it's not as though Van Til was himself utterly free from philosophical influences. Uh, what we're only saying is that he was very aware of their danger, um, and perhaps more aware than other theologians have been. Van Til was subjected to or learned from two major sources of secular philosophy during his education personal idealism, and Kantianism. Spencer gives us the following biographical insight into the influences with which Van Til interacted. Van Til did his doctoral studies under A.A. A. Bowman, a personal idealist at Princeton University. So you see, Van Til studied at Princeton, even though he came out of the Dutch background, the Amsterdam background. Already you're seeing the fusion of the two traditions in Van Til, and did his dissertation on the comparison of the absolute of idealist philosophy and the God of the Bible. Idealism thus constitutes one major philosophical influence. His THM thesis and his first written syllabus both concerned the metaphys metaphysics of apologetics, and both manifested Van Til's conviction regarding the significance of the thought of Immanuel Kant. Kant is the second major influence upon Van Til. Keeping in mind Van Til's perspective that Christians may learn from non-Christians, but not borrow from them, Spencer raises the question of what Van Til learned from these influences. Here are his answers. So, uh, we see Van Til here as a, a Christian theologian. He's putting personal idealism, he's putting Kantianism through a Christian grid. He's doing that self-consciously, but he's learning some things from them. And here's what he's learning. From Kant and his successors, Van Til gained the insight into the nature and role of presuppositions. This concern regarding presuppositions is indebted to Kant's discussion of the transcendental method. So presuppositions talk about the transcendental argument for God. You'll often see it on blogs and other places, uh, abbreviated TAG, transcendental argument for God. Well, um, the whole idea of transcendental arguments in a more general sense is not original to Van Til. Um, Kant spoke of such transcendental methods. 
That is a method which is concerned to examine an item of data, inquiring as to the necessary preconditions and foundation for its existence. So the transcendental, transcendental methodology asks, for this fact that we see here to be true, what must be true by way of preconditions for that fact? For you to sit there thinking, feeling, having ideas of love, beauty, consciousness, for you to be there, what you are, what else has to be true first? That's the transcendental method. It asks about the necessary preconditions of existence as we know it. It asks not merely how do men think, but what is necessary to make it possible for men to think. Though the question is similar for Kant and Van Til, the answers they give are diametrically opposite to each other, opposed to each other. Van Til states, it is the firm conviction of every epistemologically self-conscious Christian, <clears throat> the Christian who understands the truth about how we know what is true, that no human being can utter a single syllable, whether in negation or affirmation, unless it were for God's existence. I actually have a t-shirt that on the front of it says, epistemological self-consciousness or epistemologically self-conscious. Yes, it was by an advocate of Van Til's uh, apologetics. Anyway, from idealism, Van Til saw that a system of knowledge must be an all-inclusive. Okay, so on the one hand, Kant teaches him the, the fact that uh, the transcendental arguments are important, asking about the necessary preconditions of existence. From idealism, Van Til saw that a system of knowledge must be all-inclusive. You can't approach things in a bit-by-bit, partial-by-partial kind of way. Everything must be known before anything is known. That's, what, that's, that's the insight that Van Til got from idealism. You say, what? <laughs> that's impossible. Well, in one sense, it is impossible, of course. Except the Christians do believe that we have to know everything before we can know anything, because we have to know a God who created everything before we can be sure about anything. And this is the way that Van Til is going to bring it in to Christianity. Everything must be known before anything is known. That is, because each fact or aspect of reality is related to every other fact and thus must be interpreted in terms of that, for it is qualified by that, to know truly any aspect demands a knowledge of all other aspects, lest the one which is ignored be determinative for the one being examined. So in other words, everything's part of a big system, and to know it properly, you have to know it as part of that big system. You don't know it by itself, you know it as part of the big system. And, and, and the big system influences how you understand that particular fact, you know? If the big system is a square, then and, and, and what you know is that little X there, you know X is a part of that big square. X has a different meaning in the big square than X has in, has in the meaning of the big circle. It dep- because uh, all of this is going to influence uh, uh, how you look at that particular fact, because it's part of an overall system. It has a different significance depending on what the overall system is. <clears throat> Again, however, uh, 
The indebtedness is formal. Materially, the idea of system and the relationship of the general to the particular differ greatly as understood by Christianity and idealism. Spencer's conclusion properly contrasts Van Til with his predecessors in both Old Princeton and Amsterdam. In Van Til, thus, there is found greater self-consciousness regarding the relationship between Christian and non-Christian thought and a more explicit discussion of a method for working, uh, working for the latter. Though there are significant differences between the philosophical differences upon the orientation of Old Princeton and Amsterdam, there are also striking similarities. Kuiper and Bobbink, as well as Old Princeton, appeal to consciousness, common sense, and universal consent to justify their starting points in the perceiving and reasoning of man. Neither clearly builds from Scripture and God in so doing, but instead they both start from human experience itself considered apart from God as word and regeneration. Both thus are less than explicitly biblical and Christian in their philosophical orientation. They have been less than selective in their indebtedness to philosophical influences. But here's another important issue, the noetic effects of the fall. For Van Til, it's important to recognize that sin is a matter of ethics and not a matter of being. In other words, sin does not bring man closer to the abyss of non-being or diminishes dependence on God. Spencer states first that the effects of the fall are ethical, not ontological. The word has to do with being. For Van Til, sin is man's rejection of God as a standard. Sin is an attempt on the part of man to cut himself loose from God. This breaking loose, Van Til hastens to add, is ethical, not metaphysical. Sin is the creature's enmity and rebellion against God, but it's not an escape from creaturehood. Man cannot alter his ontological dependence on God. He still lives and moves and has his being in God. The rebellion is ethical. Man has forsaken his obligation to serve and worship and love God. Uh, this is only a hint, but if you want to go on a kind of wild goose chase, uh, it's not a wild goose chase because the goose is actually there, read, uh, read C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle. In there, I think he adopts the Christian Platonist view at one point that sin does diminish a person's being. And it's not just an ethical matter. It actually changes one's uh, ontological relationship to God. You say, I don't, are you, C.S. Lewis did that? Yes, I think he does. You go read The Last Battle. I'll give you extra credit if you find me the place in The Last Battle where actually Lewis uh, adopts the idea, at least implies the idea, that sin is ontological, not just ethical. So, yes, it does affect things that you're, you know about. <clears throat> sin does, however, have a profound effect on the way men think. The moral or ethical state of a man is basic to everything else about him. It is basic to the way he thinks. Because sin makes men hate God and brings them under his wrath, they do not want to think about God or honor him. For this reason, they attempt to interpret everything without reference to God. Without referring to God, men cannot think correctly about themselves or the world. Furthermore, there can never be any unity in the non-Christian system because only God can unify and explain the universe as it really is. And that brings us to the issue of revelation and first of all, to general and special revelation. We're so used to the categories of general and special revelation 
that we don't know how new they are. And I want to explain that to you. Here there is a marked advance beyond Adam, uh, beyond Amsterdam and Old Princeton in the clarity of Van Til's thinking. Theologians of both schools had either tended to think of Revelation as being exclusively redemptive and thus obscure general revelation, or else it tended to make special revelation exclusively redemptive and post-lapsarianism, post-lapsarian after the fall, and thus obscure the proper distinction between general and special revelation. With the help of another Dutch theologian, Gerhardus Voss, Van Til clearly rejects such obscurities. Rather, he makes a distinction between the pre-fall and pre-redemptive phase of special revelation and the post-fall and redemptive phase of special revelation. Different positions. Now, if you look back in history, it's very interesting. You know the categories of general and special revelation don't occur in our confession of faith? The, the ideas are there, but the confession speaks of the light of nature as opposed to revelation by which it means special revelation. And basically, Archibald Alexander and uh, Charles Hodge uh, are in the same place as, I think, the earlier confessional and theolo theological, reform theological positions were. I haven't done a thorough study, but I'm quite sure that the distinction uh, that you get in Archibald Alexander and Charles Hodge is the distinction between the light of nature and revelation, and revelation is equal to the Bible. Now that's not the way we think about it. If you're, if we're, if you're a trained theologian, particularly in our day, you think, you believe that there are two kinds of revelation, general and special revelation. But that's not the way Alexander and Hodge spoke of it. They spoke of the light of nature and revelation, which was equivalent to the Bible. Abraham Kuyper uh, had a little different uh, view, as I showed you. Uh, there was the natural principium. That was God's revelation before the fall to man. And there's a special principium. That's God's revelation, redemptive revelation after the fall. But now, Gerhardus Voss, and then with him, Cornelius Van Til, <laughs> broke through to this insight. We're not... In this matter of revelation and the distinctions between different kinds of revelation, we are not talking about just two things. There's not just one line. There are two. There is the fall, which divides revelation into two parts, but both before and after the fall, there are two kinds of revelation. There is general revelation before the fall, and special revelation before the fall. And there is general revelation after the fall and special revelation after the fall, post-fall. So, redemptive special revelation. Okay? <clears throat> and it wasn't until Voss and Van Til showed that you have to have a, a, a better distinct way of distinguishing that you could break out of the superficial and less than adequate molds of uh, uh, previous, um, uh, previous uh, Reformed theologians.
Building on this clarified view of the noetic or intellectual effects of sin in general revelation, Van Til makes the crucial distinction between natural or general revelation and natural theology, which we mentioned above. And so, uh, having made this distinction, he then says, natural revelation, that is to say, general revelation, both before and after the fall, does not equal natural theology. Natural revelation is what God does. Natural theology is what men do with God's natural revelation. That distinction is crucial as well. From this universal, inescapable revelation of God to man, Van Til draws a conclusion. Men ought, therefore, to know him. Despite the clarity and unavoidability of this revelation, which causes man to be always confronted with the face of God, man has not truly and properly known God. The reason for this failure lies not in God's revelation, but in man himself. God's revelation is still clear and inescapable, but in sinning, man, as it were, took out his own eyes so that he could no longer see God in his general revelation. God has revealed himself, and men consequently respond and seek the revealer, but in their perverseness, they distort the content of the revelation and seek after false gods. Now, one of the questions we have to raise in Romans 1 next week is this. Is this what Paul says in Romans 1 about natural theology? What does Paul say about natural theology as opposed to natural revelation in Romans 1? So, now, if I were you sitting out there, I would say, okay, uh, I, I might get this idea that there's a special revelation before the fall. It's non-redemptive. It's, this, is, this is basically the covenant of works, right? That's special revelation. Even before the fall, God does something in addition to nature. He comes and talks with man and gives him specific revelation that goes beyond the content of what is in creation, right? And, you, and, and so special revelation after the fall, redemptive special revelation has to do with the, what we call the covenant of grace. Fine, you say, I get the distinction between special revelation before the fall and special revelation after the fall. But... But isn't general revelation the same thing before and after the fall? Still uh, manifest in creation? Still nature? But here's, here's what happens. Um, sin, sin affects general revelation in the sense that before the fall, general revelation was given where there was no sin. So what did it reveal? Goodness of God, wisdom of God, yes, justice of God, right? All those things. But, but now, general revelation in the context of sin reveals two things, at least, that it didn't reveal before. Common grace, because now we see the goodness of God exercised towards sinful men. What do we call that? Common grace. Right? So there's common grace revealed by general revelation after the fall. The goodness of God leads men to repentance, right? Common grace. And, and what else is revealed by general revelation after the fall that wasn't revealed before? 
the wrath of God. Because, because now general revelation shows sinful men that there is a God to whom they are accountable, uh, to, to whom if they do not repent, from whom if they do not repent, I should say, they will receive judgment. And so Paul says, the wrath of God is now revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Romans 1.18 then teaches, and many other passages do, Romans 1.32, they know the ordinance of God, that those who do such things are worthy of death. Those passages teach that after the fall, a natural revelation or general revelation reveals both wrath and common grace, something it did not reveal before the fall. You might say, well, that's just the context that has changed. Yes, but in so doing, it means that a that a prism has been introduced between men and general revelation that now makes that general revelation reveal both the wrath of God and the common grace of God. And that brings us to theistic proofs. And here we're going to look at both theistic proofs proper and the argument for the authority of Scripture. First, proofs for the existence of God. Bentil rejects a number of diverse ideas regarding theistic proofs. He rejects the idea of Bavink that they're merely testimonies and not proofs. The idea of Kuiper that the natural man working with his natural principium is immune in every sense to the theistic proofs. The idea of old Princeton that they provide probable evidence for the existence of God. All these Bentil rejects. Spencer ably and insightfully summarizes Van Til's position. Theistic proofs must be demonstrations of the existence of God by the one who knows the answer already. They must be articulated in a theistic context if they are to be valid. Unless the world and all that is in it, and man and all his capacities, are understood to exist and have meaning only because of God and his activity, then the proofs will fail. They will prove a false god, one who is subject to man's epistemic standards, and one who does not give existence and meaning to all that is. The context must be theistic if the proof is to be truly and properly theistic. One cannot argue for the existence of God in a conceptual context which is anti-theistic. This is what Van Til asserts in his discussion of the traditionally formulated theistic proofs. He is frequently misunderstood at this point by both friend and foe. He is not arguing against theistic proofs per se, but against a particular tradition of theistic proofs, i.e. proofs elaborated on a neutral common and thus in reality anti-theistic basis. Of course, this is exactly the way Aquinas elaborated those proofs. Uh, Men do not know uh, self-evidently that God exists. Men do not know Uh, from a naturally implanted knowledge of God, the true and living God. They do not know that, therefore that must be demonstrated to them, and therefore, by definition, those proofs do not proceed from theistic presuppositions. For Van Til, all the proofs, design, morality, and cause, can and should be combined into an argument or proof which says that all of life and reality, ontology, epistemology, and axiology, that is to say the theory of being, the theory of knowledge, and the theory of morality, that's what those three big words mean, must presuppose God as its only explanation and foundation. Without God, there would be no life and reality. 
that they exist means that God exists. To live and function is possible only because of God and his activity. The second problem is that that of the expectations men have of the proofs. Many apparently anticipate that the proofs will make Christians out of those to whom they are presented. The proofs will persuade them to acknowledge God. This, of course, does not happen. In recognition of this, many have reduced the status of these traditionally formulated arguments from proofs to witnesses or testimonies, e.g. Bobbing, Hap, Massaline. This category is apparently what, what these non-binding testimonies uh, it's apparently for non-binding, non-compelling, evidence-backed assertions. The one advocating the positions, uh, the positions is assured of its truthfulness, but on grounds which cannot be shared or formulated. Those advocating the estimate of the arguments for the existence of God have failed. It would appear to make a crucial distinction. They have assumed that a valid proof, that is an argument which incontrovertibly establishes a position, like mathematical proofs do, will necessarily always and everywhere persuade the hearer to assent. Proof and persuasion are synonymous for them. Since people are not always persuaded by theistic arguments, they must not be proofs. They fail to distinguish the objective validity of the arguments, their validity in terms of valid inference and structure and also the truth of the premises, from the subjective acceptability of the arguments. Man's approval is not essential to truth. So proof and persuasion are two different things. You get that? A proof can be perfectly valid and it still not, might not persuade some people. And the fact that it doesn't persuade some people doesn't mean that it's not a perfectly valid proof. Right? I'll refrain from further comments on that that might get me into trouble. Men and women have these conversations all the time. Men think that they've absolutely approved something to their wives. <laughs> and their wives aren't persuaded. <laughs> we won't get into that argument, though. <clears throat> to summarize, with reference to the theistic proofs and nat proper and natural revelation, Van Til rejects probabilism in favor of asserting that the theistic proofs are absolutely valid and provide certainty to the human mind of the existence of God. The certainty is only possible if they are not constructed on the basis of a supposed epistemological common ground with a natural man. The proofs must presuppose the existence of God. Arguments constructed on the basis of supposed neutral ground are of no help at all and provide not even probable evidence for the existence of God. This approach governs Van Til's approach to Warfield's probabilism. And now we turn to this subject with regard to the authority of Scripture. Now, it might surprise you to know that Warfield only thought that Scripture was probably true. Does that surprise you? But I think it's the truth. Proofs for the authority of Scripture. Van Til stresses that there is a relationship between the old Princeton approach to theistic proofs and Warfield's approach to the authority of Scripture. If right reason or man in the natural use of reason can discover that God, that is the true God, exists, he has therewith already found the possibility of supernatural revelation. Because if there's a God, then there's a possibility of supernatural revelation. He needs only to engage in historical research in order to look for the reality of such a revelation. In doing so, he will then be asked first to look at the New Testament as a human document, written by trustworthy men. He must not be asked directly to regard these documents as being the Word of God. 
So the first thing Warfield says is, well, we know there's a God from the probable truths, proofs for the existence of God. That God, if there's, if there's such a God exists, he can speak. Now we just have to do some historical research to find out where he spoke. <clears throat> and we don't want to look at these documents that claim to be the Word of God. First of all, it's the Word of God. We have to look at them as simply documents written by trustworthy men. First of all, look at them as merely human. Ben Till in the above sentence has begun to summarize Warfield's approach to the authority of Scripture. He continues, For the sake of letting right reason judge for itself whether they are such, whether they are the Word of God, these records must first be presented as being ordinary historical records. As historical records written by the apostles, they tell us about the life and labors and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The picture given in these records leaves the impression of very similitude. Jesus of Nazareth appears from them as being the very Son of God. He promised to the disciples the spirit of truth so they would be inspired to write the New Testament as the Word of God. It is thus that we get to the idea of infallible inspiration by way of a process of reasoning. We must not argue, we must not, argues Warfield, begin with it as immediately and directly a part of the Bible that as Christians we present to men. Warfield therefore plainly denies that we should make all the truths or teachings of Scripture depend on the doctrine of inspiration as their logical foundation. He says, let it not be said that we thus that thus we found the whole Christian system upon the doctrine of plenary inspiration. We found the whole Christian system on the doctrine of plenary inspiration as well as we found it upon the doctrine of angelic existences. Were there no such thing as inspiration, Christianity would be true. And all its essential doctrines would be credibly witnessed to us in the generally trustworthy reports of the teaching of our Lord and of his authoritative agents in founding the church, preserving in the writings of the apostles and their first followers and the historical witness of the living church. Inspiration is not the most fundamental of Christian doctrines, nor even the first things we prove about, about the scriptures. These we first prove authentic, historically credible, generally trustworthy, before we prove them to be inspired. Warfield is open about the result of this methodology upon the certainty of scripture. He frankly adopts the doctrine of probabilism. Of course, this evidence, he says, is not in the strict logical sense demonstrative. It is probable evidence. It therefore leaves open the metaphysical possibility of its being mistaken. Now, of course, Warfield really doesn't believe it's mistaken, but he has to admit that his argument doesn't absolutely metaphysically prove that the Bible is true. Van Til proceeds to argue that Warfield is inconsistent with his own apologetic. Warfield, that is to say, really does not believe that there's any doubt about the status of Scripture. Furthermore, Warfield is consistent, inconsistent with Warfield's own reformed theology. Quote, it was only an inconsistency on Warfield's part to advocate a method of apologetics that is out of accord with the foundation concepts of his own reformed theology. In the midst of his rebuttal of Warfield, Van Til states his own doctrine of this matter. The identification of Scripture as the Word of God is of necessity also the work of the self-attesting God. In this case, affected through the testimony of the Holy Spirit. The identity of Scripture as the Word of God can therefore be affected be no other way than by way of the self-testimony of Scripture. And it can be accepted in the last analysis in no other way than through the testimony of the Holy Spirit to the Scripture self-attesting. And what the Scripture itself says, and what the Holy Spirit says, with regard to Scripture, 
is not that it's probably true. What they say is that it is the word of God. Thus, Van Til rejects Warfield's method of appealing to the historical verification of Scripture as, first of all, only trustworthy history. He rejects the probabilism this implies. Van Til regards special revelation as possessing the same divine and self-attesting certainty as natural revelation. As the source of all meaning and certainty, the Word of God cannot be verified by foreign evidence outside itself. Such merely probable evidence is useless in establishing its identity as the Word of God. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church and is calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.